Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. And today I am very excited to talk to Dr. Aaron Drew. I like to say Dr. Drew because <laughs> it sounds like a superhero. And actually when we start talking, you'll see he kind of is a superhero. Um, anyway, I digress. So Dr. Drew is technical director for the supply chain management SCM product line at the United States Department of Veterans Affairs in the office of information and technology. That is such a mouthful, just like every government title. <laughs> you know you made it in this life when you have a very wordy title. <laughs> well, welcome to Tech Transforms. And today we are going to talk about um, supply chain, risk management, modernization across the agency, which is massive, by the way. Um, well, how, how big is the agency? Like how many people work at the VA, how many facilities are you managing? Okay, so again, we have, this is probably about 400,000 people that work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. We are the, outside of DOD, we are the largest employer within the federal government. On the health side, we have about 171 hospitals. We have about 1,200 community-based outpatient clinics. Uh, then, you know, we have like, you know, several regional offices supporting VBA, our Veterans Benefits Administration, and I forgot the exact total, but like, you know, we have quite a few, I think it might be 155 uh, cemeteries that we manage through the National Cemetery Administration. So, so when we think of like logistics, we're thinking about health logistics, logistics supporting, you know, um, all of those wonderful veteran benefits from the GI Bill all the way to, um, you know, our uh, employment programs, helping our nation's veterans like get jobs and, and helping them like, you know, uh, cover their costs for, uh, you know, printing off resumes or, or bus passes, getting to and from interviews, even getting to work, providing like rental and housing subsidies so our veterans don't go homeless. And then, then, then on the cemetery side, tombstones, grave markers, everything that goes into putting on an unforgettable and world-class, you know, memorial experience. And that happens every single day. And you're probably saying, Doc, what do you mean every day? Let's just jump back on the health side for a second. With the 171 hospitals and 1,200 community-based outpatient clinics, that logistic alone supports over 300,000 clinical encounters. That's right, 300,000 clinical encounters every single day. Clinical what? That every time a veteran sees a clinician, that's a clinical encounter. 300,000 a day? 300,000 a day. Yeah. These numbers, like the scale of it just breaks my head. So are you focused on the health side? Or are you, you got to be, where's your focus? So right <laughs> now, and, 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 and Congress has, you know, <laughs> directly focus to focusing on the health side. Uh, but we, myself, I'm looking at the bigger picture. I'm looking at having a truly enterprise logistics uh, you know, process, you know, and, and that will be accomplished through us, quite a few business process engineering activities. Uh, and then to support the conclusion of those BPRs, you'd have this tool, this commercial tool that we will all leverage because now we will have an enterprise like logistics tool, that, that, that supply chain management tool that cuts across the National Cemetery Administration, 
the Veterans Benefits Administration and the Veterans Health Administration. You know, to also include, you know, some of our other offices too, like, you know, Office of, you know, Acquisition Logistics Construction and Office of Information and Technology, because, you know, we buy devices and so forth. So, you know, we're going to rely on that logistics platform as well. But to, to put it in perspective, our footprint, even the health side, is twice the size of DOD. That's how large the VA's just health footprint is. Well, it might have been you that made me aware of this. I, I can't remember who told me, but you don't have to be a veteran to go to. You are correct. So right? not those 3,000 are veterans. You are correct. Yeah, we, the VA hospitals, we can't turn anyone away. So walk-ins off of the street, dependents, yeah, our hospitals are open, you know? Right. We come there, we will provide you with care. And so we have to account for that in our whole logistics and our planning operation that, that you know, we didn't have all these hospitals just to solely treat the 34 million American veterans and her family, uh, citizens from the greater American population can also receive world-class care at our VA medical centers and our community-based outpatient clinics, you know, so so that number includes walk-ins, you know. Yeah. So I want to I want to back up a little bit. Something you said that I I want you to clarify for me. You said a supply chain, or maybe did you say a supply chain management tool? Yeah, like you know, you know, a a solution of source that we could leverage to help us manage and and move our operations into the the, the current century. I think a lot of the tools that we rely on today um, are in that forty, fifty, almost sixty years old. And so, you know, you know, and and some of our tools, and and, and more particular is Vista, you know, which was was a, written in nineteen seventy seven and was provisioned in nineteen seventy eight. And we still use it as very day. This is 181 modules. And some of those modules we keep hearing about are the EHR piece. That's great. That's about like 46% of VISTA is the EHR piece. The rest is all the admin pieces around the hospital. And that brings it to some of our current supply chain logistics you know, tools. They still exist in that 1977 application. It's a massive yeah. application, but we rely on that application every single day. Uh, you know, uh, to 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 manage this this massive supply chain operation. That was a blast from the past. Vista, that word I forgot about. Yeah. Vista by the famous Vista Underground Railroad. That's what they called themselves back in 1977. Wow. Yeah. All right. So talk to me about. I mean, this massive scale that you're managing. What what are the most recent COVID supply chain <laughs> challenges that have impacted your mission? I'd probably say uh, divisibility, not knowing what we had, not knowing who needed it, and and not and, and and not possessing the most efficient means of getting those items to those hospitals or those clinics, and then the processes of refilling ourselves. You know, so so there was a bit of a disconnect from the from an ordering standpoint. Uh, we had challenges with availability of resources. I can't put them all on. Um, we'll say uh, the producer per se. Sometimes, you know, we were in a position where, we, where maybe we didn't know how much of a certain thing that we needed. Again, we weren't running metrics. We weren't, we weren't looking across the enterprise and seeing what we were buying a lot of, or based upon all those clinical accounts on a daily basis, what resources or commodities were being consumed more rapidly than others, and then turning around in real time and backfilling and buying more of those. And so we found ourselves in the position of saying that, yes, we have items on contract to the VA, but the issue is, is 
Sometimes those items were unavailable and that put our facilities in the position where they go out to the open market using the government purchase card and then to buy stuff. Well, then you have government hospitals competing with other hospitals in that same open market for stuff, you know? So yeah, it, it, um, it, it became, uh, you know, it, it was problematic that um, we were more attentive to the data that we had to anticipate our needs going forward. And so that's where we are trying to go. That, that's where this modernization effort is trying to take us to, is to provide our decision makers with that visibility. And, and, and again, that visibility also includes further upstream to our suppliers and manufacturers. What shortfalls or issues are they facing and how does it impact us, the United States Department of Veterans Affairs, and what decisions do we need to make you know, in order to ensure that our supply rooms stay stocked, no matter what issues are taking place further up or even downstream in the supply chain? It's such an interesting theme, visibility. I mean, we hear it about our networks, just knowing like there's so much involved, knowing um, what's out there and how everything relates. And and then you get into this physical wor world that you're talking about. So how have you been able to um, mitigate that challenge of visibility? Uh, and, and that's, you know, understanding where we want to be, kind of mapping out that to be state. Like who, who do we want to be? Who... What tomorrow awaits us and who are we in that tomorrow? And then beginning to work the process backwards by crafting, you know, uh, IT acquisition documents, you know, and then and, and setting forth this whole process to, to bring in a commercial solution that will help us realize that, that vision of ourselves and that target state. We're, we're very familiar, very versed in our as is, but how do we get to that target? Now, I don't want to, I know I'm an engineer. Uh, by nature and trade and education. But I want to take a pause and say that it's not just about the technology, you know? And that, I think that's where people let us straight that, you know, simply buying technology will solve the problem. No, that's the technology is a small portion of the supply chain modernization. It's the people. That's the big challenge right there is the people. Because you got to understand the environment that people work in. You got to understand no matter what back and forth issues that we may squabble over, every day someone goes to work and they have to relive this reality every single day, you know? And we're trying to get there fast, but we all got to remember, but someone is still living every day while we try to figure things out. So we have to remember the people. We need to have a, a change management plan that includes the, the workforce, the low decisions upfront and early. Because without them, it doesn't matter what shiny new supply chain tool that I have and that, but that wonderful new car smell that we all love and know so well, it doesn't matter when the people reject you. When they decide that adoption is not the decision they want to make because they were part of the process from the get-go. And so mm -hmm. this effort is involved change management, training. We got, we, we, we got to change who we are, we can change what we do. And that's where that business process re-engineering comes in. And I, I would argue only then, once we figure out and accept who we want to be, then it'll become clear in terms of what tool that we should be adopting. That's going to get that innovation adoption. That's going to move us past this whole idea of buy-in. That's going to take us to stay in. And that's what mm -hmm. we want to do. Well, and it can be like, the tool can sometimes wag the dog right where that it needs true. to be 
exact opposite. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Like yeah. it's the people using the tools, feeding the tools, the supply mm -hmm. chain management to your point of um, the protective gear, the medical gear that's needed. Yeah. I mean, it's the people's eyes on what they've got, getting it yeah. into the inventory of the tools. Yeah, so, they, they, they live it. They know what they need. There has to be that feedback loop in terms of what they need, how to get it, that replenishment happens, orders are made, the fulfillment happens, and that way from an inventory, enterprise inventory standpoint, we saw it coming. Mm -hmm. We have visibility again. I, I'll probably use that word, you know, several times, but maybe some other illity words that I'll use as well: scalability, reliability. But let's talk about visibility right now. But that to see the happening before it happens, kind of like that old Diana Ross song from the '60s about the happening. Yeah, the happening mm -hmm. keeps happening. Like right now in our data environment, a story is being told to us. Maybe it's the story of the next pandemic, you know, but. Not having the visibility, we can't anticipate, which means we can't proactively, not really, but proactively respond to it by way of what we're purchasing. So when that happening does happen, oh, we were ready for it, you know? So that's what's key. So that so we don't have a capability today, but that's one of the things that we are hoping to not only have, but as with every opportunity to exploit tomorrow. So there aren't a lot of organizations at your scale. In fact, you are, we've already talked about this. You're the second large, largest, right? Next to DOD. Uh, um, what advice, but but the lessons that you've learned certainly apply no matter how big, oh, yeah. right? To anybody trying to deal with supply chain management. So can you boil it down to like two or three like top things that you would tell anybody that's trying to manage their supply chain, top three pieces of advice there was a lot that we just talked about. <laughs> so I'm going to ask yeah. you to distill it down for me. I would say, remember the people. Remember who your customers are. Yeah. Uh, if you are trying to redefine their normalcy, they better be in the planet room with you. You better know who they are. At the end of the day, you have to recall a, a name that was given to you, a hand that you shook. You should know who your customer is and they should be in the room with you. If you plan this without them, you can't be surprised when they reject it and potentially do it at the same time. So that's thing one is you know who your customer, I really with a capital K, know who your customer is. Two, data, data, data. Um, I have data in every format, you know, from every type of, you know, uh, from, from several decades ago to several hours ago. So being able to have cleanse, curator, standardized data, and, 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 and that's going to help in terms of any type of like migration effort as we move from our as-is systems to the new system. But the important thing is, is to go through that hard work. And yes, this is not glamorous work to be involved with cleansing, curator, standardized, renormalizing data. This is, this is the dirt. This, this is the dirty job. But it's best to do all of that prepping and automating or processing now before the solution comes up. Otherwise, you lose all that time on the front end worrying about and getting the data ready when you could be at that next phase, which is now let's talk about how we want to do the migration or how do we want to do the conversion. So, so doing that data part and understanding and addressing your data needs and its 
it's preparing up front. I think that would be key. Well, and I heard you say to get to automation. Is that the end goal of doing oh, all this yeah, stuff with the data? I slid that one in there. You're very good. You yeah. So a lot of our processes in VA are manual, or dare I say, swivel chair. So I got folks entering data in one system, and then they got to print something out, and then they got to turn their chair to another system, and then rekey in that. So we will live before. Yeah. Wait, what did so, you just yeah. say to me? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why are you entering data twice? Okay. As is, you know, I don't know that I don't have an answer for all the whys, but this is an example of some of the realities in an as is environment. And for those that are watching and listening, they're probably going, Dr. Drew, you have one of those too. I'm sure you do. Of course you do. Uh, every as an environment has that one set of solutions that causes the eyebrow to raise, just as yours did when I mentioned swivel chair. The swivel chair is a real thing and we need to move beyond that. That's why we're gonna automate our processes so that way a new commercial solution is now simply ingesting data as opposed to we still have a litany of humans that are too involved in the process of information exchange, or dare I say, machine to machine messaging. When I think of machine to machine messaging, you know what I don't think of? Humans in the middle. No. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the plan, the plan for tomorrow, for the target state, for the Department of Veteran Affairs, is to have the, a set of automated processes that touch that critical data to feed into our solutions, which then feed other solutions to our other government partners, such as we recently decided an MOU with the Department of Health and Human Services, you know. So they have a program that I think FEMA uses to, to help respond to natural disasters when lo the local uh, when cities or states and so forth have deemed that the resource need is more than they're able to provide and they need federal government assistance. Well, now the VA will be part of providing in real time our entire inventory uh, to this platform. And now FEMA can then make real world accurate decisions regarding what's available at when states require federal assistance. You know? So you're so not just good. talking about sharing data amongst your own systems. You're talking we, about sharing data to everybody who needs the data. Homeland Security, Department of Defense, Department of uh, Health and Human Services. Do you do that now? Them. Yeah, so our MOU just got signed. We're working on a data use agreement, but the plan going forward is to show that there the, these efficiencies at mm -hmm. the federal level is that we're going to do our part in support of HHS on the platform to support FEMA and Homeland Security who are directly engaging the American population. So this is an example of why it's so important to have these automated processes. By doing that, we can now move to real time and say goodbye to this idea of near real time. Because near real time was like, that was like a broadcast. Anything could be considered near real time. You yeah. know, we want... <laughs> Real time, because when a tornado hits you right now in real time, yeah, you need federal assistance in real time. You want FEMA to look around your entire area amongst its government inventory, and be like, I know exactly how much we can buy to that location in real time and have that accurate information. And so, so that's where all this blooms. This is this is this is the, the the foliage of that hard work that we talked about earlier regarding the data. But more importantly, that rolled on the backs of 
are no decisions, you know? The people who enter that data and enter it accurately every single day allows for me to provide quality data to another, to our partner department who's trying to take care of everybody, you know? Mm -hmm. So big when tornadoes and hurricanes hit, but what you can rely on is that partners such as FEMA have access to real-time information regarding the government inventory. To get to this state, it's requiring a lot of modernization. How do you navigate technology procurement? Because the government procurement process is not easy. Um, so how do you manage the procurement and and the implementation when yeah, you're so, modernizing? And, and we're in, we are actively, the government's actively, you know, looking at and examining innovative ways for buying information technology, buying and looking at how we go about procuring, for example, like, you know, um, we'll say, you know, SaaS products and tools. So the traditional model of buying, let's say, client server technology or physical equipment, yeah, has lended itself to a newer way of doing things. Uh, but one, one thing still holds true. What are your requirements? What problem are you trying to What do the to people solve? need, right? Let's what not the, people need? the tool people not wagging about, the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when I hear, you know, comments about how difficult the acquisition problem, you know, process is, and I get I will say it's not easy, you know. Um, but what makes it easier is if you know what problem you're trying to solve. And to your point, that the problem came from the people. You didn't make this up in your own laboratory. It wasn't the Dr. Drew made up a problem and he's trying to solve his own problem. No, is I put my ear to the street. I visited some VA medical centers. I went to the cemeteries. I was over at the filming centers. I was riding in the VA vans, you know? So I understand and I lived with the problem. And now I'm like, okay, you know what? It makes the outcome simple because now you can articulate it back to the contracting officer. And then that makes the, the, the bi-directional engagement so much better when you can articulate the problem you're trying to solve and the requirement associated with that problem. Well, and what you just said, like you went to these places, you sat next to the people and maybe even worked on the systems they were working See, on. Your own eyes. She's like, that's what you do? Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it but is that perspective is so important because even if you, you identify, okay, the cemeteries have X problem without you actually going there and, and embedding yourself with them for a minute, you don't really know. Well, yeah. Right. What they go through to prepare for a ceremony, you know, or to be on the other side of that, to be a family member, uh, such as myself, who had no visibility when my dad's tombstone or grave marker was being created or going to be delivered, you know? So to, yeah. to go through that loss and then to lose twice, you know, because you didn't know when you're supposed to receive something, you even have the funeral in the first place, you know? So, you know, either you are meeting them where they are, which is mm -hmm. very important, or you've lived it, which allows you to relate and commiserate with those who are working the problem day-to-day -day basis. That's what's going to bring you organically to the problem. That's going to allow both parties then to own the solution. I mean... All the new technology that's and tools that gets introduced, even to me in my job, honestly, it feels like death by a thousand paper cuts, yeah. 10,000 paper cuts, because every time you get a new tool, we were just talking about this before, the difference between these, um, these virtual platforms, 
They're just enough different that they can cause in me a lot of anxiety. Like they, they basically have the same functions, right? It's just, you, you hit, you hit join and there you are. Well, no, until you actually move from platform to platform, you don't realize things are placed differently. The interfaces are just enough different that there is a learning curve. And that one's a pretty easy learning curve. The people that have to actually use them, how do you get them to embrace them? Because I'm telling you. That's a good question. I think (laughs) from a strategic standpoint is make it so it reminds them of something that they already know. And you're like, Dr. Drew, that was a word salad, probably coherent. Make it so it reminds them of something that they already know. Um, as an example, a lot of your uh, listeners are familiar with the whole, let's say, for example, the Amazon with Amazon Prime interface, you know, whether it's the mobile app or on their laptop or the tablet. So you have a lot of companies trying to copy that. So that way, that instant intuitiveness becomes inherent in the solution because their tool reminds the end user of something that they already know. So if you can do that, whether it's the font, the color choice, whatever the layout might be, then that kind of helps with the adoption of a system. It's not so drastically new or different, but there's some degree of familiarity. So that's one of the strategies I've seen a lot of firms take in terms of building out that user interface, uh, which, and again, um, creating a user experience that referencing someone else's success. When you're picking a tool and you get it down to the top three, do you ever um, do a user group with your practitioners and get them? I mean, that's, yes. it sounds so good. And at the same time, I've been asked to do that. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely done that, you know? Uh, okay. So I find it effective to bring in actual end users and then have them in the room and whatever user scenario, let's say for example, we may have asked the, the, the seller to perform to see the system works because we did, you know, sellers have all the time to rehearse and practice whatever. Like, okay, great. And then we actually leave. And then there's our people with the same user scenario. Now you go up there and do the same thing, whatever. And so that feedback tells you more about usability than if the seller were to tell me, trust me, my system is highly usable and highly intuitive. I'm going to need to bring my own people and have right. the people Let's that were see the same how intuitive Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's someone cold coming up who wears that VA badge that I do proudly. Now they're going to execute the scenario and I'm going to ask them, was this system intuitive? How usable would you rate this system? So yeah, yeah I, I agree. That is, and I get that is an acquisition strategy. So so going well, back yeah, to- Yeah, because then you get, a, you get a champion that says, yeah, I picked this tool. I so now you get a champion within these different groups that- and When they pick it, yeah. they own it. And then yes. Dr. Guzning falls into the darkness of history because all they hear about was the person that picked it and then then owned it and then they got deployed and everybody celebrates Billy. Congratulations, Billy. That's what I want you to have happen. I don't want people to think I'm accepting a tool that Dr. Drew shoved in our throat. No, you welcome the tool that Billy picked. Yes. And in that moment, that means I've won. And as much as I don't want a new tool, because the learning curve is painful. I would rather just stay in my own misery than try to learn something new. (laughs) But what are the risks 
of not implementing and modernizing these new with modernizing with these new tools? Uh, we have to remember that at a certain point, uh, our legacy systems were built and created in a reality that no longer exists, which means they have natural constraints and obstacles and limits when you try to compare them to how we live and operate today, you know? We only knew what we knew 30, 40, 50 years ago, and at that point in time, some of our systems were ahead of their time. Imagine that, building something 50 years ago, and even then being considered ahead of your time, only to fast forward 50 years forward, and now you are a laggard in this. Dinosaur, you're a dinosaur. Or a dinosaur. <laughs> you used to dominate, everybody wanted to be like you, and now people point to you as a reason why you should modernize, you know? So, so there's the risk that um, there are capabilities or opportunities you're missing out on, you know? Um, had we were successful in some of our earlier modernizations, I think some of the challenges that we encountered during the whole um, the COVID pandemic, um, we, we, we would have been better positioned to address before it even required addressing, if that makes sense. We would have been prepared to address it before, before it became a thing because the trend analysis, the prescriptive analysis, the longitudinal analysis, we just saw that in the data that something was askew taking place in the nation, you know? We would have saw that COVID didn't happen in March of 2020. COVID happened in October of 2019 because we would have saw all the clinical cases. We would react to it then. By the time it became like this massive global-wide effort, we would have already positioned ourselves, we bought the supplies, stocked up and what have you. We didn't have ready to go and we probably would have coasted through it because we saw it happen before it happened. And so, and I said at the top of the conversation, just there will be another thing, whatever that thing is going to be, and having that visibility, you know, that's going to help us be proactive before it becomes an actual thing. And that's what we want going forward when it, with respect to FY24 and beyond, is for this massive department, massive as we are, to be nimble and agile enough to respond to the next global pandemic before it becomes a global pandemic. So if you, let's get a little granular here. If you would have modernized specifically how, say in 2018, mm -hmm. you would have, what, what technologies would you wish had been in place that would have prepared you better? Prepared I think you better? Yeah, they were there. Uh, the platforms were there, and you really can't miss the particular commercial company, but the the ability to do data analytics. Mm. And, and that right there. And again, uh, even if even if we had moved the data to a, a, a you know a warehouse or or even a data lake at that point in time, um, the ability to do analytics on that data was was there, you know. The quality of our data and where it was located. Not so much, you know. Again, the hard, dirty work, those dirty jobs hadn't been done yet. So if I had the, the capabilities, I didn't do the work regarding the data, you know. So that, that has to happen. If you do the dirty jobs and the data, then you apply the analytics. Now you can see what you couldn't have seen before. So was, I, I would say specifically was the, the uh, predictive and the, uh, the forecasting analytics. Was the dirty data job a technology issue or a people issue? Uh, I'd probably say a little bit of both, you know? The tools okay. that we need to kind of like, you know, help us in terms of cleansing and curating and standardizing data, being able to match that data. Because again, what we don't want to have had is like, there's the government way of describing something. 
you know, and we're going to say in a healthcare example, there's the government medical way of describing something, and then there's the commercial open market way of describing that same thing. So, you know, you know, Stanford University Medical and the Department of Veteran Affairs should refer to the same clinical expendable or consumer item the same way. We can't have two different, you know, vocabularies or two different ontology describing stuff. You know, we need to we need to standardize on terms so that way we can talk to one another and understand what we're saying. So so again, that's a combination of technology and also you're right, the people to actually perform that work, you know. So so again, I, I'd say it was a, both were key and our key going forward to getting us to the point where um, any analysis applied to the data is being applied to good data. Mm. There are a lot of government mandated security requirements, such as um, the National Cybersecurity Strategy. There's a lot listed there. Do those requirements pose challenges for you? Um, I think the big one is, is the, the zero trust architecture, right? I think um, from a, a was it um, OMB memorandum M2209? I think we have to demonstrate uh, compliance that by the end of FY24. So yeah. building a boundary, uh, you know, uh, implementing again, cloud hosting, multi-factor authentication, leveraging, access-based, um, attribute-based access control, role-based attribute, sorry, role-based access control. So so yeah, um, being able to stop a longitudinal or east-west movement between systems of the same domain. So again, if, if, a, if, a, if an evil actor hacks one system, they can't move longitudinal to another system. So again, being able to, to limit exposure and risk to other systems within a product line or portfolio or domain, uh, in the event that there is an export that takes place. So but you know, um, securing the devices, you know, do, you know, doing that authentication and so forth for the device. And then having that solution also managing the access as well. So um, yeah, it, it's a it's a bit of a challenge because again, you're looking at network access, application access, and data access within this, this zero trust architecture framework. But I think it's a great policy. You know, mm. I think we should be doing it all along. This idea of just just implementing trust blindly because similar systems are of like value, or a person has access to one, so they should automatically have access to others. Yeah, that I think. The world's not that utopic and friendly, you know? So, right. So, well, and um, I, I'm conjuring the zero trust model in my mind. And I, I'm reminded of what, like back to the beginning of our conversation, the theme of visibility. I feel like there's a gray bar that goes across all those five yeah. pillars, the visibility across those five pillars. Because you need to be able to track the trap. You need to track like who's doing what and what information is being passed. So, so again, you know, uh, one of the, 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 Classes of a zero to archer framework is, is that is that monitoring the visibility capability of all of your authenticated users. You know, what are they doing? What data are they grabbing? Do they have permission to that data? Where are they sending it to? Like where where is everything being moved to and who's doing what to whom? Right? So, yeah, and we're not so just talking about people, doing. we're talking about your systems talking to each other. Too. Exactly, you know. So yeah. Yeah, so uh, Massive. A lot, of, a lot of these systems are simply making calls to you know, application programming interfaces and getting data. I, let, well, let me see what's being moved because if that system doing something that it wasn't supposed to, like, was there a shift in terms of the type of the payload that system X was moving or has that system been compromised and now was pulling different data than it's supposed to be pulling, right? Because again, sometimes like the malicious attack isn't a person, it's I got a system to grab data and send data somewhere else. You know, once I export a system, I can have that data sent anywhere. 
well, if I didn't have eyes on that system, that might be a true statement. But now I can see everything that's going to be doing. And the moment we start identifying anomalous behavior, that's where the crackdown happens, you know? And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for anomalies, you know? So I want to go back to the acquisition of new technology. And I, I think we've talked about the different steps, you know, kind of maybe not in the right or not necessarily in order. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> Going back to when you acquire a new technology, um, what are the steps that you take? What are you looking for and how do you go about it? And again, uh, absent of doing a, a name selection, basically when I go back to our, our episode saying, I want to buy this product. And of course that comes with again, a series of justifications about why I name selected a particular product. So outside of that example, it, it really comes down to forget about who makes what? Let's focusing on what are the requirements and does these tools address these particular set of requirements? So those are really kind of like the, the, the fundamental two primary ways that I can go about buying technology. I craft, you know, um, a set of requirements. I put forth some expected deliverables from either the seller or what the tool is supposed to do. And I go forward, I market that out there in the, uh, in the open market space or I'm really fond of in the field of technology. It does the thing I needed to do, and maybe it's a niche solution. And then I go through a series of comments that with justifications for why A, I'm not competing in B, why I specifically need that product. And I've done that before as well, but I've even worked with MITRE to do that whole sole source justification because there was a specific technology that I wanted and I got it, you know. So, so that's that process is, is working with our lawyers, working with our acquisition center to secure that technology. So this might be a little bit of a simple question, but let's back up before you even start looking at technology. How do you know that you need a new tool? That's a really good question. Um, if, if you are unable to address the shift, because normally these problems come out because there's been a shift in the business you're trying to do and the tools you had before you don't address that shift, that change of dynamics, then that's when we have this gap. That's that delta between how you did business then and how you're expected to do business tomorrow. That kind of like will signify or, or call that, that ignition of this solution acquisition process. Mm. All right, before we jump to our Tech Talk questions, um, do you have any last words of advice you'd like to yeah, leave our listeners? Um, the journey can be a bit frustrating and it is not linear, much like life. Information technology at the enterprise level is not linear. It zigs, it zags, it stops, it starts, then it starts all over again. Uh, but the one thing that, that I enjoy about this process that kind of gives me hope and I keep doing it all over again with every single project is at some point, you get to done. At some point, it happens. You get through it all for the requirements, to the acquisitions, to the design, to the build, to the test, to the deployment, to the congressional hearings, to the budget meetings, to the multi-year planning, to dealing with the customers, to the stakeholders. At some point, yeah, the system is deployed and people use it. And you know in that moment, you have successfully redefined their normalcy. And then momentum takes over. And then more sites use it and more people use it. And then you feel the IT person, you can back away 
and focus on the next lump of clay that you now should also turn into a deployed system a year or two or three from now. And then, so that's that's the joy of it all. Like, be patient. It's going to happen. Remember, it's not linear. Hmm. It sounds like it never ends, right? Oh, no, it never ends. Yep, but I can tell that you actually thrive on it. So <laughs> we're, lucky, we like, we're lucky we have people like you that <laughs> want to solve these really hard problems. <laughs> all right, let's... Let's go to these final tech talk questions, just fun, quick questions, mostly to build my reading list. Um, but, uh, or my my uh, tourist list. So that's my first question for you. Do you have a favorite museum or place in uh, the DC area that you like to go to? I don't, I mean, I, the top two places I like, although uh, DC Museum, I need to step it up. Uh, I like the Holocaust Museum and second of the African American Museum, but they, they got us the African American Museum. I need to step your game up. I was there recently, and my great uncle, Dr. Charles R. Drew, wasn't listed. I'm thinking the man developed the blood bank and, and all. How, how's he not in there? You, know, you called I, them out. Yeah, oh my gosh. I, I called them out. Yes, I did. It's like I came all the way here to see my great great uncle, Dr. Charles R. Drew. And he is not in here. You know? All right, Raven, my friend at the Smithsonian that uh, actually works at that museum. I'm ca I'm called to Raven. You just heard Dr. Drew. His great great <laughs> uncle is not there. <laughs> not there. I'm coming back. I'm bringing the. I had the family last time. I bring the family again because I told them before I leave this earth, I want to go to that museum. I want to take a picture from one Dr. Drew to the next. I want to take a picture with them. You know. So all right, I'm tagging Raven. Raven can make this happen. You can put it next to Ben Carlson. Ben Carlson has a whole thing. Put it next to Ben. It's not that hard. All <laughs> right. All right. So uncle. You love that museum and will love you. You return to that museum because you're waiting for them to fix something. But yeah. it is a great museum, though. It's, it, it's interactive. Yeah. yeah. And you could spend a year in there. And it's sure. well, and, and what's so great about it is partly the technology behind it because it keeps it updating. I bet your great, great uncle's there now. Yeah, I, I, he probably is. Probably, probably, it's near the internet, someone had already, <laughs> you know? I would go like, oh, he's here, oh, my bad, you know? But the Holocaust Museum, second to none. Uh, you know, second to none, that museum. Uh, I feel like they challenge themselves every year to see how many people can we make cry on the way out of this museum, you know? That museum wrecked me. That yeah. museum absolutely wrecked me. I've only <laughs> yes. been once and it was a profound experience and mm -hmm. I don't know if I can go back. I mean, yeah. it took me, when I say wrecked me, I mean, I was, I was down for about a, a week, at least a week. It was hard. And my little trick to get over the, to help me upon leaving the museum is to head over to the back of the Smithsonian and see that Titanic diamond because nothing turned the spirit around that giant okay blue diamond He's like, okay that's so that's oh, you know? that's the trick okay i'll go to the diamond yeah, after across, i walk across the thing i'm all feeling kind of like i can't believe that you know and then i walk in there i see the big old diamond going okay, okay. or do you know what i could do i could go to the air and space museum in sterling Mm -hmm. I love that place. I think I actually was, I, I went there for the first time like uh, maybe a year ago. Took my, uh, my wife took all of us there and I, I like that place. Yeah. Right? That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, and the scale, mmm, like standing next to the, the spaceship, the shuttle, yeah. 
shuttle, the shuttle. Yeah, it's just incredible. <laughs> the ship is in space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. that's another one that kind of turns the spirit around. You'd be like, there you go. Marvels of man. Well, the marvels of person kind. Like, I was, I was men and women, because without, yeah, the marvels of person kind in terms of what we create with imagination and a few mm -hmm. requirements. Yeah. Look what we yes. were able to achieve. And you just touched on, well, I'm going to, well, I don't want to, I don't want to skew your answer. So before I, well, you touched on why I love some of the favorite genres that I love, why I love them, um, the imagination, why I love books and podcasts and movies and the fictional stuff, not just, I mean, I love nonfiction too. So what are some of your favorite books, podcasts, movies? I love the geopolitical message of the Avatar series, you know, especially with the, the I think there's two or three more movies that are about to happen, you know, it's, for me, it's more than- the, Like Airbender the, Avatar? Oh, oh no, no, I know, Avatar, 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 got yeah. it, got it, yeah. okay. Like, yeah, because I think it's supposed to be like five movies, so two already came out, three more- Okay, like, okay. but Dr. Drew, <sighs> I wanted to love this second one. <laughs> I felt like it was the same story, it was just in the different. water. It was a little different. <laughs> it was. A little, little was it? <laughs> it, it was. It was long, like three hours. It was so long, but the yeah. visuals, the visuals were incredible yeah. and intense. And man, I wanted to slap that one kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I like movies that 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 kind of speak to us on multiple levels, like. Visually stimulating, yes, my brain reacts to, but that, that, but have a message that from our lives that we can relate to, whether it's the struggle of a minority or the challenges of being a woman and a, and a male, a seemingly male, seemingly male dominant society, like one that has a message beneath the story. You'd be like, I was drawn into because I saw my life through those fictional characters. I, I saw my woes and my struggles played out on the silver screen. And so, so I like stories that. That they, they kind of take a hold of me, but also speak to me. And so so that's those are so I, I kind of chose that one because James Cameron consistently uh goes after, you know, um those type of issues and so forth. Others movies was kind of skirt by, but he was like, hey, you know what? Someone has to talk about it. And if we can't talk about it, I bet you I can get you to watch and listen about it. And yeah. so you should accomplish it. No, I agree. I mean, he tackles them head on and in a brutal way. Mm. I mean, the hunt or the, I, for, I forget the creatures that they hunt, the big whale-like creatures. I forget them. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, mm. I mean, that, just even oh, that thread alone yeah. was. We're doing it out there now with whaling, you know, like exactly. right now on our own planet. Yeah. But man, talk about really making it personal with that thread and how you get into it and then you see oh this is what they take oh they yep. kill this magnificent creature let's talk about the sharks and they take the fin that's the it fin. yeah yep. so okay all right i, I will give you avatar points and so forth just a test you kill this massive creature just for the test or this belief that the horn of a rhino might like stop aging so you kill the rhino we're just the horn. You know? Yeah, and how's that working out for you? The, exactly. the non aging. <laughs> how's that anti working out for you? We polarize it. Yeah, Bobby, you know. So, uh, and then, like, we, 
I see us doing similar things, you know, in our own humanity, or in some cases, lack thereof, with the animals that we share this world with, that are part of this greater ecosystem, and we do things to offset that balance, and we can't complain when El Nino comes back, you know, like, you do know it's all connected, you know? Right, exactly. um, So, but that's so, so that's where, that's what entertains me, because as far as reading goes, I'm kind of like knee deep in textbooks from the, my, the classes that I teach. So, so I don't, I don't get a chance to read for pleasure as opposed to read to enlighten my own understanding of certain concepts and constructs so I can try to put it in my own words to, to teach my students. I tell people, uh, you take an engineering MIT professor and then you take Dave Chappelle, the comedian, and you merge the two together, that's what you have me as a professor, you know? I try to make engineering fun. Yeah, I believe that. And Dave Chappelle's one of my favorites. His early stuff too, man. Talk about tackling issues head on. Oh yeah, yeah. And then he did a great job talking about Daphne. Yeah. 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 So So where do you teach? I teach at the University of Maryland and I also teach at New York University. And you teach engineering? I teach engineering at uh, the University of Maryland and I teach healthcare information technology management uh, at New York University. All right. Impressive. Thank you. Well, it's funny. It keeps me on my toes, you know, because you never know when someone's going to ask you a question and stumps you. So in order to avoid ever being stumped, I'm always reading. I'm always prepared. And so prepping in my academic life prepares me for my professional life and vice versa. Yeah. I was a teacher in another life and, and I loved it. And I agree. It definitely keeps you on your toes. I taught 13-year-olds, though. Oh, that's, that's a lot harder. That's a lot harder. <laughs> I know a lot of college brothers would tap out after not even full term. Like, no, it's been one well, grade. I'm out. Yeah. They were a lot of fun, though, because they were still young enough that they would be like, sure, we'll, we'll do this project. <laughs> yeah, let's turn our classroom into Anne Frank's attic and let's oh, do that. Cool. Yeah, but they oh, were but that. they were old enough to do it, right? Indeed, so it was yeah. really fun. It was fun. Well, I like that. I was like, yeah, that's not pretty good. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah, we had it was it was a good way to study Anne Frank. I like All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Drew. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I it's the it is the best part of my week when I get to talk to people and I mean just interesting, fun people like you. Like I I love your description of yourself that you're Dave Chappelle meets who was the other boring professor? No, engineering professor. Yeah, especially if you teach in a class in the summertime in a classroom with no windows. See, now how do you keep people excited for fourteen weeks in the summertime in a class with no windows? Man, yeah, you are a superhero. (laughs) Doctor Drew is the absolute right name for you. (laughs) I got a cape behind his black chair. I believe. Well, thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners um, for listening today. Please smash that like button and share this episode. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 